السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته إن الحمد لله إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن سيدنا محمدا عبده ورسوله يقول الله جل وعلا في كتابه الكريم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون 
يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما اما بعد فان اصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه واله وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أعاذنا الله وإياكم منها أجمعين أما بعد Dear brothers and sisters This is our fifth session discussing the gems and the wisdoms and lessons contained in the 49th chapter of the Qur'an, known as Surah Al-Hujurat. And we have been spending a lot of time reflecting on the broader social lessons contained in this chapter. We began by looking at the foundation of a healthy Muslim society, looking at the center of gravity and the axis of that society, which is centered on having proper respect and reverence for the person of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam. And then we looked at the importance of verifying information that comes to us and not running with rumors and spreading them here and there, causing harm to other people. Then we looked at the third theme of this chapter, which was about conflict resolution. What we should do if two parties from within our communities start arguing and fighting and falling into conflict with each other. Then we looked at the fourth theme, which was the prohibition of ridicule, of derision, of giving bad nicknames to people, and fault-finding. And today, inshallah, we look at the last three themes of Surah Al-Hujurat this chapter of the Qur'an. And these three themes are the prohibition of suspicion, of spying on other people, and on backbiting other people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the community of iman, of faith, addressing them, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, O you who have believed, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اِجْتَنِبُوا كَثِيرًا مِّنَ الظَّنِّ إِنَّ بَعْضَ الظَّنِّ إِثْمِ He says, O you who have believed, avoid much of suspicion. Indeed, some suspicion is sinful. We see in this verse, dear brothers and sisters, that Allah Ta'ala is commanding us to avoid much of suspicion forbidding us from spying and backbiting. So the first thing we're focusing on is this suspicion. What is suspicion? Allah Ta'ala uses the word dhan. And dhan can mean suspicion. It can also mean having a, a, a bad opinion about someone. We have su'adhan, which is to have a bad opinion about someone, a bad assumption about someone entertaining evil thoughts about someone. And then we have husn al which is having a beautiful or a good opinion about someone, 
giving a positive spin on what they say or do instead of interpreting it in the worst possible way. So here Allah Ta'ala is commanding us to have a good opinion and He is forbidding us from having a bad opinion. But it's not an absolute. For there are times where we should have a bad opinion of someone. And there are times where we should not have a good opinion of someone. That is why Allah Ta'ala says, اِجْتَنِبُوا كَثِيرًا مِنَ Stay away from much of suspicion. He doesn't say all suspicion. Some suspicion is warranted. Then he says, Indeed, some suspicion is sinful. Meaning not all of it is sinful, but some is. Now the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, says, He says, beware of entertaining evil suspicions. For entertaining evil suspicions is the most untrustworthy or the most untruthful of speech. So we should have as our default setting as Muslims a good opinion of people. And husn al-dhan applies to the actions and characteristics of others, the things they may do that carry the possibility of being interpreted as good or interpreted as bad. You see your brother or your sister doing something and it's unclear. You could interpret it in the worst possible light or you could interpret it in a good light. When the action carries both possibilities, if you put it on a proverbial scale, the action could be good or it could be bad depending on how you interpret it, then the default should be that we interpret it as good. We should have a good opinion. Muhammad al-Hasana or Muhammad Sayyia, we give weight to the good opinion. So if you have a scale, a proverbial scale in your mind, and you see your brother say something or do something that you could interpret it badly or you could interpret it in a good way, which side of the scale pan should you put it on? You put it on the good side because you have no reason to have certainty that it's bad. But if the action is clearly haram, if it's clearly prohibited, such as a person consuming drugs or alcohol publicly, or fornication, consuming the haram openly and publicly, and you cannot find a good interpretation for what they're doing. It is not a having a good opinion of them to assume that they're not doing something that they are clearly doing. So when, what you should do in that situation is you correct them, you advise them, you tell them that this is something prohibited by Allah, it's bad for them, it's bad for them in this life and the next. You command the good, you forbid the evil, you reproach them, you disapprove of it in your heart at the very least, while believing that inshallah, Allah will inspire them to make tawbah, to repent and get better, and you don't necessarily think that you're better than them. If you were in their situation, maybe you would do the same. So we have this understanding of giving excuses to people, of interpreting their ambiguous statements or actions in the best possible light. And we have a narration from Imam al-Bayhaqi, 
that he transmits in his Shu'ab al-Iman from one known as Hamdun al-Qassar, one of the early Muslims. And he said, if a friend among you errs, then make 70 excuses for him. And if your heart is unable to give him 70 excuses, then know that the shortcoming is in you. Now, this statement about giving 70 excuses to your brother or sister is a statement of Hamdun al-Qassar. It's not a hadith. A lot of people believe that give 70 excuses to your brother is a hadith, a statement of the Prophet ﷺ. It is not. So this is telling us that the higher road, the way of purity and sincerity, is to look at them with the eye of sincere concern and to try as good, as best as we can to give them the benefit of the doubt as our default. So the default setting of a Muslim towards others is to give them the benefit of the doubt, especially when the acts are ambiguous, when they could be interpreted in a good way or a bad way. The scale should tip in favor of the good interpretation. And we have a narration from Abdullah ibn Muhammad ibn Munazil, one of the early Muslims from the Salaf. He says that the believer seeks excuses for his brothers and sisters, while the munafiq, the hypocrite, seeks out the faults of his brothers and sisters. So we're not fault finders and fault seekers. We're not seeking to ferret out every tiny error of people we come across. We overlook things, we give positive spins and interpretations to ambiguous statements and actions. We default to thinking good about people. That is what Allah Ta'ala asks of us. And that's why it is said, you should give 70 excuses. 70 is mutlaqul kathra. It doesn't mean literally 70. It means just give them as many excuses as you can, provided they are reasonable excuses. Because you see, one of the challenges that we have is the misapplication of these guidelines. A person can take this narration, give 70 excuses, and they can misapply it. It can be exploited by people. Sometimes a person is an abuser. Sometimes a person is a charlatan or a fraud, defrauding people and harming people in very clear ways. And if someone brings up their abuse, a person might come and say, well, you know, you should give them 70 excuses. You should have a good opinion about them. So these principles are important, but they can also be exploited and abused. And this is why it is so important for Muslims to understand the principles of their deen, so that we understand the proper application of these principles, and also understand how they are misapplied. Just as we are taught to give the best possible interpretation to people's actions, we are also taught by the Prophet ﷺ, a believer is not stung from the same hole twice. A believer is not stung from the same hole twice. So when we give 70 excuses to someone's behavior, when we give them a positive interpretation, that is when the interpretation is viable, when the interpretation is reasonable, what the scholars call ta'wil qareeb. It's a reasonable interpretation. 
It doesn't apply to ta'wil ba'id, far-fetched interpretations. If someone comes to you, and this was an example I mentioned a couple of years ago. It's an extreme example, but it illustrates the point. If someone comes up to someone else and they punch them in the face, is it having a good opinion of that person to say they were actually just trying to get that crumb of food out of your beard and they're just being a little too eager about it? Is that a reasonable interpretation? Someone comes up to someone, punches them in the face, and another person says, oh no, he wasn't punching him. We had to have husnavan. He was actually getting that crumb out of his beard. Is that a reasonable interpretation? It's not reasonable. That is ta'wil ba'id. The reasonable interpretation is he literally struck him, and that is wrong, and he should be condemned. If you give unreasonable interpretations to wrong actions done by others, guess what's going to happen? They're going to keep doing those things. So it can be abused. That's why the principle is in place. You give a positive spin, a positive interpretation when it is a reasonable interpretation, when it is something that is most likely to be the case. You don't let this become a way of abusing others and gaslighting others who call it out. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, Stay away from much of dhun. He is not prohibiting us from staying away from all suspicions or all negative interpretations. He says, Some, some of this dhun is sinful implying that some of it is not sinful. Some of it is well regarded and appropriate. What that means is we have to be intelligent. The believer is kayis. He is intelligent. He uses his intellect. He uses his reason. He gives a positive interpretation to people's actions when it's 50-50 or it's likely that there's a positive interpretation and it's not clear. But if they are clearly doing things that are prohibited, if they are clearly abusing the rights of others, then it is against the guidance of Allah and His Messenger to try to cover that up with far-fetched interpretations. That is why Allah says, Some is sinful, not all. Some is warranted. So the question that comes to us, we turn this issue inwards and see how it applies to us. The question is, how can we have more husnavan? How can we be people who don't automatically give the worst interpretation to people's actions? And the answer to that involves a number of things. If you find that you are overly suspicious of people's motives, if you find that you interpret their actions and statements in the negative as your default setting, and you look upon them with the eye of suspicion, you have this problem of su'avvan, of entertaining evil suspicions about people. How do you remedy it? How do you get rid of that? The ulama tell us that one of the ways you can get rid of this is to simply make dua for people, just pray for people. Because a lot of times when we're holding evil suspicions about people, 
it's because we harbor other resentments or because we feel we're better than them or because we dislike them. And because we dislike them, everything they do is bad. If our friends were doing the same thing, they wouldn't be doing bad. If our friend was doing the exact same thing, we'd have personal fun. But because I don't like this person, whatever he does is framed in a negative way. Therefore, su'adhan. How do you remedy that? You make dua for people, including the people you don't like. It's a fact of life that we're not going to all get along and be best friends. Allah does not ask us that we're all best friends, but we're all brothers and sisters, and we are joined by the bonds of faith. So if we find that we have a difficult relationship with someone, maybe they annoy us, maybe they anger us, maybe there's some bad history in the past, we interpret everything they do and say in a bad light. The way you can get rid of this is just to make dua for them, even if you have some bad feelings towards them. That person, just make dua for them. And you will find that it's very hard to sincerely pray for someone and continue to harbor ill feelings towards them. You may not take them as your friend because you've had some bad experiences, but you're not going to have as much resentment moving forward. The second way to remove this evil suspicion from others is to put yourself in their place. Consider exactly what they may be going through. And we have an example of this in Surah An-Nur. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in connection with the Haditatul Ifk, addressing the believers. Why, when you heard this, the slander, this false rumor, why, when you heard it, did, you, did not the believing men and believing women think good of one another? What if it was you? What if you were the one being slandered? When you think about what others may be going through, you can have a better interpretation of their actions. This also includes applying this scale and actively interpreting the words and actions of others in the best possible way. This was the habit of the early Muslims. This was their default. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, do not think ill of a word that your believing brother utters as long as it can be interpreted in a good way. And this takes time and it is a skill to be developed. Lastly, make excuses for each other. We want people to make excuses for us because we recognize our own struggles. We recognize our own character faults. We recognize our own foibles. But we're reluctant to give excuses to others who are just as human as we are and who are struggling just as much as we are, if not more. So making excuses for others is a way of getting rid of this evil suspicion. Ibn Sirin, one of the great early Muslims, said, if you have come to know that someone has harmed you with a word or a deed, you should try to make an excuse for him. And if you can't find an excuse, you should say, maybe there's an excuse that I do not know of. Again, this is not asking you to roll over and take abuse. It's not asking you to deny clear realities in front of you. It's asking us to make excuses when there are plausible explanations for a person's statements or behaviors 
when it could be interpreted in a good way or a bad way. If you have to weigh the action, it goes in the scale pan of a good interpretation. This is how we remove this bad habit, this bad trait of thinking bad and thinking the worst of people. How often do we make error, innocent errors in judgment? How often do we say something or do something that we later regret, either based on partial information or jumping to conclusions, or sometimes just being tired and in a bad mood? And when we come to our senses, we think back on what we said or did and think, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Wouldn't you like for that other person to consider those factors and make an excuse for you, giving you that space to come to your senses and say, you know, I was wrong? But we have to do the same with other people. So if they say something harshly to us, they make us angry, they do something we don't particularly like, if this is not an obvious oppression, Try to make some space for them and make an excuse and, and allow them some time to come to their senses. That's what we would like for ourselves. And this is how Allah Ta'ala addressed Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. He did not want to let go of the great offense he felt when one of the relatives bought into the slander against his beloved daughter. And so Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala encouraged Abu Bakr to forgive this person. And then he says, do you not love that Allah should forgive you too? We sin, they sin, we all commit sins. Just as we would love for Allah to forgive us, we can forgive other people. May Allah make us of those people. Ameen. And make us of the mustaghfirin, those who seek forgiveness, those who make excuses, legitimate excuses, and those who try to have a good opinion of people as the default setting. Amin. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa afdulu salati wa atamu taslimi ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Al-Sadiq al-Ameen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi. Wa man istanna bi sunnatihi ila yawmiddin wa ba'd. Dear brothers and sisters, of the last three themes in this beautiful chapter of the Qur'an, Surah Al-Hujurat, Allah Ta'ala mentions the prohibition of suspicion, su'avvan. And then He says, وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتًا فَكَرِهْتُمُوهُ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَوَّابٌ رَحِيمٌ So the next two themes are the prohibition of spying on people and backbiting people. So Allah Ta'ala says, وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا Do not spy against other people. Spying is usually done when the person already has a bad opinion of someone. And it's the bad opinion that spurs them on to get confirmation of the bad opinion by means of spying. So usually it is one that creates the other. And when a person confirms or denies what they were spying on, they then backbite them and spread it around. So these three things are all connected. What is tajessus? Tajessus is basically seeking confirmation of your suspicions through means of spying, seeking access to private matters that are not in the public eye. Now here's the thing. Allah Ta'ala 
asks us, nay, he demands us to be an ummah, a nation that stands for truth and justice, and that commands the good and forbids the evil, that advocates for public morality. Allah demands that of us, but Allah does not demand us to spy on people. If a person is doing immoral practices in the privacy of their home, and we have no knowledge of it, it is not our responsibility to spy on them, to get confirmation that they're actually doing bad things. As Muslims, we are only morally responsible for commanding the good and forbidding the evil for public displays of immorality, things done in the open, visible to others. If a person chooses to disobey Allah in the privacy of their home, that is between them and Allah. May Allah guide them and us. But it's not our job to pry and spy. This is what Allah Ta'ala prohibits us from doing. The next thing Allah prohibits is perhaps one of the most common, the most rampant, the most, well, most spread out sin out of all of the different sins. And that is the sin of ghiba, of backbiting. In the past, backbiting would have been mostly with the tongue. But now we have the additional challenge of backbiting with the tongue as well as backbiting with our fingers and what we type. And that is why it is so widespread. Ghiba or backbiting comes from ghain ya ba, from ghaib. So ikhtabahu means he spoke evil about someone in that person's absence. So we have a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where he was sitting one day with some of the companions and one of them began to speak badly about another one in his absence. And as the Prophet sallallahu he is charged with conveying the guidance of Allah. So he tells this man, pick your teeth, pick your teeth. And the man looked quizzically, but I, I haven't eaten anything. How, why should I pick my teeth? And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, No, but you have eaten the flesh of your dead brother. That is what Allah says in the Quran. Would any of you like to eat the flesh of his dead brother? What's the analogy here? Imagine if we have a barbecue here, like we do every year. And on that barbecue, we have one of, your, one of our brothers or sisters on the barbecue, their dead body, and we're cutting up the flesh and feeding people. That is ugly. That is detestable. It's loathsome. No one would enjoy that. Likewise, eating the flesh of our brother or sister in their absence is just as abhorrent. What is the similarity between the dead person and the person being backbitten? The similarity is they cannot defend themselves. If a person is on a grill being barbecued and their flesh is eaten, they're dead. They cannot defend themselves and keep people from violating their body. Likewise, the person who is being backbitten, they're not around to defend themselves. Maybe if they were present and someone was talking bad about them, they could at least defend themselves. They could offer their viewpoint. They could push back on what's being said. But no, it's in absence. And one of the things you see every single time with backbiting is that most of the times 
the person who is backbiting someone, they say this and that about this person in their absence, but when that person is physically in front of them, they're all smiles. There's nothing to say. You were so brave to say all of these things behind their back, but when they're in front of you, you're like a little mouse. It's shameful. It's a, coward, it's a cowardly behavior. And the Prophet ﷺ clarified this when he says in a question, do you know what backbiting is? He made sure the Sahaba knew. Do you know what backbiting is? And they gave the answer, Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam. Allah and His Messenger know best. And he said, backbiting is talking about your brother in a manner which he does not like. Now one of the companions was a little confused. He said, well, what if what I'm saying is true? Because he has this confusion that if it's true, I can say it. The Prophet ﷺ corrected him. He said, if what you say is true, then you would have backbitten him. And if what you said is untrue, then it is buhtan, it is slander. So slander is ghiba combined with a lie. Backbiting is saying something loathsome, something that a person would dislike, even if it's true. And it can take on so many different forms. It could be about their body, their personality, their clothing, their family, their background, their lineage, their status, anything connected with them. Some of the ulama in the past would say, even if someone talks badly about their, their cattle, if they have a farm, and say, yeah, their cows are, are skinny and bow-legged and rickety. If they talk bad about the cattle, it reflects on the person. They said, even that is backbiting. So it could be physical appearance, personality, clothing, anything connected with them. And this applies to whether the person is dead or alive. And it applies as long as the person listening to, to you knows who you're talking about. It's different if you mention an incident without specifying who it was. But if both people know, this is ghiba. So why do we do it? Well, we do it because we want enjoyment or because we are in bad company and we fall into the crowd and peer pressure and get involved with backbiting. And we are similar to those about whom Allah says, the people of Jahannam say, We used to gossip along with the gossipers. People backbite because they have too much spare time. They have so much spare time that instead of doing something productive, they just decide they're going to talk trash about people and backbite them as if it's nothing. People backbite because they lack awareness of their own faults. As Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, Prophet Jesus famously said, you observe the shard of wood, the splinter in the eye of your brother, while you neglect the log that is inside of your own. If you focus on the faults of others and that's all you see, you fall into backbiting. If you turn that inwards, you pay attention to your own faults. Another reason people backbite is because of envy, because of hatred, because of resentments. They're inspired to backbite someone just because they don't like them. And it's as if they believe, if I don't like that person, then Allah has not given me any limits about what I can say or do about them. This is not true. 
The guidance of Allah is not just for those people that you like. The guidance of Allah is not just for your friends or your family. It's for everyone, even the people you don't like. So I leave you, dear brothers and sisters, with the prophetic advice. As we have journeyed through this entire chapter of the Qur'an over the course of the past month, the Prophet ﷺ said, O oh, you who have believed with only your tongues, Amanna. O oh, you who have believed with only your tongues, but Iman, true faith, has not yet entered your hearts. Do not backbite the believers. Do not search out their faults. For the one who searches out the private matters of the believer, Allah will follow their private matters. Allah will take them to task. And whoever has their private matters followed by Allah, Allah will expose them even if they're hiding in their home. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deliver this reminder for myself and for all of you. Surah Al-Hujurat is always going to be relevant because we are always going to be an ummah. And an ummah is a collection of human beings. And these human beings are fallible. And we're liable to violate our rights, the rights of others. But Allah reminds us in this chapter that the society is built by having adab towards Rasulullah being mindful of the information received and how we share it, making peace between ourselves, and watching how we speak about each other. And when we speak about each other in this way, it breaks down families, it breaks down communities, it creates fitna. And the only way to remedy this is the guidance of Allah in this chapter. May Allah inspire us with this guidance. Ameen. Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fi al-akhirati hasana wa qina adab al-nar. Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammadin abdika wa rasulik an nabiyyir ummi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallim tisliman kathira bi qadri azamati thatika fi kulli waqtin wahin. سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين أقوموا إلى صلاتكم